This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Holly Tucker discusses her new book, City of Light, City of Poison. Then PW News Editor John Marr reports on literary nonprofits in the age of Trump. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. We've got a new number one in fiction, Mark. Oh, what is that? What is it? Uh, it's The Cutthroat by Clive Cussler. Mm-hmm. And uh, no surprise that uh, Cussler is always at the top of the bestseller list when he has a new book out. This one is co-authored by Justin Scott, and it's the tenth book in the Isaac Bell series uh, after 2016's The Gangster, which Scott also co-wrote. And this one has a very interesting premise, which is that Jack the Ripper is alive and well and rampaging across early 20th century America. Mm. And uh, so this is an interesting setting, a little bit of a departure from Kessler's other thrillers, uh, which tend to have contemporary settings. This one has a historical setting, and uh, in this case, the killer also has a connection with a traveling play, a modernized version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So there's a lot of connections here between the early 20th century and the late 19th century, the Victorian era, when the original Jack the Ripper was doing his thing. Um, Our review says that fans of historical action novels will find a lot to like. Great. And that's the number one. Uh, number four is The Devil's Triangle by Catherine Coulter and J.T. Ellison. Uh, we called this Adventure Filled. It's the fourth thriller in the Brit in the FBI series. And uh, in, in this case, uh, the two central characters travel to Venice, Italy, um, to meet a master thief who's uh, hoping that they will actually be able to provide her with some help. And uh, we say... Uh, in our review, that from the Kohath twins' mountain fortress in Italy to Jason's hidden island in the Bermuda Triangle, uh, the team engages in an epic series of battles with the evil twins, uh, who are their antagonists and their minions. And fans of popular culture will appreciate the references to such icons as the Star Trek Romulans, Harry Potter, and Sherlock Holmes. That's what's happening at number four. Right below that, number five is Without Warning and J.B. Collins. Uh, adventure, and uh, this is the third book in the J.B. Collins series by Joel C. Rosenberg. We don't have a review of uh, this particular title, but uh, it's the third in an ongoing thriller series, which is all about good Americans battling the evil Islamic State, and uh, if that's the sort of thing you like, then this seems to be a decent example of its kind. Great. Just below that. Uh, in this grave hour is uh, the at number six by Jacqueline Winspear. Um, this is the thirteenth Maisie Dobbs mystery um, set uh, right at the beginning of World War II in 1939, um, just as Neville Chamberlain announces that Britain is at war with Germany. And uh, we called the book uneven. Um, said that uh, Maisie shows 
a lack of acuity and uh, the mystery fails to grip. The quality of the prose also falls short of Windsor's usual high standards, so this one is definitely just for the fans. Hmm. And finally, down at number 22, I wanted to mention uh, New York 2140 by Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, nice to see him climbing up the bestseller list. Uh, this is set in a mid-22nd century Earth that's been devastated by global warming, and it uh, examines the political and economic implications of dramatically higher ocean levels, specifically their effects on New York City, where uh, lower, lower Manhattan is submerged, the streets have become canals. And uh, we say that the writing, ironically, is dry, uh, given the amount of water in the book. <laughs> Several sections are uh, very exposition-heavy. So uh, you know, our, our review says that readers who are open to an optimistic projection of how humans could handle an increasingly plausible environmental catastrophe will find the info dumps worth wading through. Oh, great. And uh, that's what we've got. On the list. All right. Well, uh, nonfiction, not surprising. Trump is topping the list. I know we're going to be hearing more about, uh, you know, later on uh, with John Marr about literary nonprofits in the age of Trump. And this one is from Michael Savage, Trump's War, His Battle for America. Uh, so that's at number one. Number six, it's a uh, World of Warcraft Chronicle Volume 2. It's a uh, companion to the World of Warcraft. Every once in a while, this, uh, these, these uh, companions pop up on the bestseller list. And for some reason, I'm always surprised. And then we have at number seven, Good Grief, Heal Your Soul, Honor Your Loved Ones, and Learn to Live Again by uh, Teresa Caputo. She is the star of TLC's Long Island Medium, and she's also a, a New York Times bestselling author. And in this one, it's a uh, she serves as a guide to overcoming grief. And the book is filled with inspiring lessons from uh, and astonishing stories, according to the uh, publicity material from the clients who have been empowered by her spiritual readings. So that's at number seven. We don't have a review of our own of that. And the next one is we've been seeing a lot more religion books or religious themed books on the list. This one is by Rod Dreher. It's called The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Rod Dreher is the uh, author of uh, several books, a couple of best-selling books. Uh, he's also the uh, columnist for American Conservative. And this one, he calls on American Christians to prepare for the coming dark age by embracing an ancient Christian way of life. Uh, that, again, is from the... Uh, uh, publicity material. And uh, finally, at number 26, we have Writer, Sailor, Soldier, Spy, Ernest Hemingway's Secret Adventures, 1935 to 1961 by Nicholas Reynolds. And we say in our review, this thoroughly researched exploration of Hemingway's military adventurism fails to deliver a convincing conclusion. We say in concluding that Hemingway was a gifted, uh, quote-unquote, but overconfident uh, amateur in politics and espionage. Reynolds overstates the toll those pursuits took on the writer. So uh, it's on the bestseller list, but a um, kind of lukewarm, if not not warm, review from us. So that's basically all we have in nonfiction. Well, I was glancing down the fiction list and realized that I had missed one title that I do want to single out. Um, it's at number 23, which is why I haven't quite scrolled down that far. Ah. And uh, it's The Idiot by Elif Batman. 
Uh, we gave it a starred review, so I did definitely want to mention it. Uh, it's uh, We say it's a wonderful first novel, uh, a Bildungsroman that's narrated with fluent wit and inexorable intelligence uh, by its 18-year-old protagonist who's beginning her first year at Harvard in the fall of 1995. And uh, there are wonderful lines like, she thinks of herself as a writer, although this conviction was completely independent of having ever written anything. She's Turkish-American, she befriends a Serbian and a Hungarian, and uh, they all travel together and uh, decide to explore the world as well as uh, becoming correspondents in an exciting new medium called email. And uh, one character wonders whether it's possible to be sincere without sounding pretentious. And our review says that this long-awaited and engrossing novel delivers a resounding yes. Mm. So that's definitely one worth picking up. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, that's been an anticipated one. Uh, I've read uh, her nonfiction and, and, of course, her reporting in The New Yorker, so that's that's great to hear. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Holly Tucker tells us how Paris's first police chief battled spell-casting priests. We'll be right back. I'm Donna Freitas, author of The Happiness Effect, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Holly Tucker on the line. Her new book is City of Light, City of Poison, Murder, Magic, and the First Police Chief of Paris. Holly, I'm so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. The book opens in Paris in 1665 with the murder of the city's criminal lieutenant. Um, Who was he? And tell us a little bit about what that role entailed. Well, the criminal lieutenant's name was Tardieu, and he was in his home um, minding his own business. In broad daylight, two thieves come in and kill both he and his wife by shooting them to death. And that set off a whole concern on the part of the King Louis XIV about just how dangerous his capital city had become and something desperately needs to be done about it. So um, set the scene for us. What else was happening in Paris and in France at the time? Louis XIV had taken power about four years before and had already started his sights on constructing Versailles. It would take another 20 years or so for Versailles to become the great palace that we know. But at the same time, Louis XIV was trying to establish his name as monarch across all of Europe. And so the French were in consistent battle against the Spanish as well as the English and also the United Provinces of Holland. So there's a, a you know a battle for Louis the Fourteenth to create his great name. But the problem is, is Paris itself was a dangerous, dirty crime capital of the world. And the king decided that he really needed to find ways to reconcile both the splendor that he was building in Versailles and the squalor that persisted in Paris. So describe to us. Paris in 1665. Take us, uh, you know, maybe to the uh, lieutenant's house and what the streets looked like then. I'm, uh, uh, I guess it had expanded beyond the the island there. Mm-hmm. In fact, I've had people ask me if I could go back in time and actually spend the day in the Paris that I write about. Would I do it? And I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't <laughs> want to be anywhere near it. It smelled. Um, there was muck in the streets that sometimes could go up to your ankles, if not higher, because people would throw their trash into into the streets. Um, animals roamed. Cows mooed. You. It, 
the noise was just ear-shattering in Paris. And it wasn't just, you had asked about, you know, the size of Paris. It just wasn't that island where Notre Dame is now. It extended into the left banks, into the Latin Quarter, and then into the right bank, um, into what is the Marais area, and then also the area that's now where the opera is. Paris is still quite small, but each of the different quarters were very distinct. You had some of the wealthiest people living on the right bank. You had the most unruly students living in the Latin Quarter. And then really not too far from the King's Palace itself, the Louvre, um, maybe not even a 10-minute walk, you had the most impoverished neighborhood of Paris that was unbelievably dangerous. And that's where a lot of the, the uh, problems as far as the crime um, lived, and that is one of the main areas that the king needed to address immediately. So what kinds of crimes were going on? Um, and if I'm not mistaken, some of these were committed by French nobility, or was it the French nobility who were involved somehow? Well, all different types of crimes were happening, specifically because Paris at night um, had no light. Well, you were moving through these cities, actually at the risk of death, because around the corner anything could be waiting for you. As well as the fact that at night every street had two or three taverns, and the nobility themselves um, were able, they carried swords as a sign of, of their social marks, but their lackeys and their domestic workers would then leave the, the the estates in which they're working in Paris, get drunk in the in the taverns, and they would start getting into fights with with all the swords that they were carrying, and especially with the new handguns um, that uh, were uncontrolled in Paris at the time. Firearms actually changed radically within about five years in the 1660s because they were you it was able they were able to make them shorter. And they could be more concealed. So the crimes that were being taken that were taking place were both thefts, thefts of wigs and hats, um, crime being beaten up, robbed, or killed by firearms. Anything, any, anything could happen in Paris, and often did in this time period. I love that there were no lights in 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 the city of light, and in the title mm. of your of your book. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that you know that changed, right? And Louis the Fourteenth decided he needed to do something about it, so he hired the first police chief of the city. Before, there um, had been no formal means of uh, supervising the city and taking care of crime in the city, and he he named Nicolas de la Reine, Nicolas de la Reine, as his first police chief, and that was the very first thing that la Reine decided to do, was to address the dangers in the evening. So he ordered um, that these huge lanterns be designed um, with amazing candles. Probably these candles were about 18 inches, sometimes two feet across, and designed these um, encasements made of glass, affixed pulleys at the top of the buildings. And then every night at dusk, the church church bells would ring. This is after the chief, chief, the police chief was, um, was appointed. One of his first actions was to make sure that the citizens citizenry would go out 
and light the candles. So once the church bells would ring, you would have a whole army of candle lighters. <laughs> they'd light them. They'd pull them up. And within a year, um, there were over 2,500 lanterns affixed to every single street in Paris. And that's where Paris got the name City of Light. Wow. And, and what was the population of Paris at the time? wasn't very big. I mean, historians debate uh, about the population this time. It was not much more than 500,000 citizens, if that. Um, and it depends on how you count them, because um, many of those citizens, of course, lived outside of the, the city walls or were coming in from the countryside during the days to work. So it's nowhere near the size of Paris that we can think about today, nor did it have the footprint um, of Paris today. And one way to put it in perspective is that beautiful church, Sacré-Cœur, up in Montmartre, didn't exist. I mean, that was still another couple of year, hundred years away. Mm. And Montmartre had windmills. Right. Wow. Um, and that was outside of the city wall. So Paris was really uh, quite small footprint, but very dense nonetheless. If you can think about it, very dense in the sense that there were people pretty much in some of the neighborhoods living one on top of the other, and in the more impoverished neighborhoods, you know, you could have families of you know ten to fifteen people living in in a very small space, even just one small room and sharing beds. Um, that, that's the thing that fascinates me most about Paris at this time, is that there there are so many different characteristics. And the police chief was hired, he was appointed to come in and, and really address not just one Paris, but address these multiple um, forms of Parisian life. It was almost an impossible task that he was given, actually. So who was he? And how did King Louis pick him? And what did he do initially? Well, the first thing, to be appointed by Louis XIV, you had to be a faithful supporter of Louis XIV's politics. And by that, the most obvious way of judging that is Louis XIV would take a look and see who supported the monarchy in um, 1643 to 1648 in a civil war that's now called the Fronde. Um, it was when the nobility, there was an uprising of the nobility against the monarchy in a hope of actually toppling the monarchy. Louis XIV wanted nothing to do with anybody who had played any role in trying to bring down the monarchy. La Renée was out in Bordeaux at the time, a well from a well-known legal family, and La Renée actually risked his life in Bordeaux in an uprising that had you know, moved out of Paris and into the provinces um, against the monarchy to be able to fight the cause for the king. Eventually, he um, began um, working for the king's prime minister, Colbert, and Colbert was very impressed by the types of missives and dis um, uh, reports that La Renée was putting together for Colbert. And when it came time for the king to uh, name someone, the Prime Minister Colbert actually recommended La Renée and said, you know, this guy, is he is principled, he's ethical, he is a hard worker, and by the way, he really loves your monarchy. Um, and it was, a, it was a slam dunk. Louis XIV was delighted to bring him aboard. So Lavigny conducted these huge investigations, and um, that's where the magic of your subtitle comes in. Tell us about mm -hmm. the sort of mystical, metaphysical side to what was going on in the Paris criminal world. 
Well, in that neighborhood I mentioned, the impoverished neighborhood that's not too far from the Louvre, um, there was a group of women and men who sold a lot of things. They sold herbs. They sold spells. They performed, particularly a whole cluster of midwives who performed any number of abortions. And people would come to them with their greatest hopes. They would hope that somebody would fall in love with them. And so one of the one of the herbalists, one of the women, the midwives, later witch, um, would be very happy to provide with them, them with some mixture of a love potion, for example. There were also people in this neighborhood that, that made a living out of reading palms and telling the future. And then later, when someone, you know, when love started to go south, then there would be something called the inheritance powder that you could buy at a price to be able to rid oneself of a troublesome husband or an annoying family member. So magic, herbs, and poison especially all came into play in this murky part of of Paris. And it was organized by um, prominent figures in the sense that one woman, woman, um, Catherine Voisin, she was well known for being the the, the person that someone would come to for face whitening powders or um, love um, love potions, and then also getting rid of one's husband. And then there was also a network in that same neighborhood of rogue priests who would also, for a price, offer to perform spells in some of in some of the most well known churches in Paris. In fact, I don't think anybody, after reading the book, will ever be able to walk into Notre Dame and not think about the fact that poisons were actually being traded in Notre Dame, as well as during, um, during masses. Rogue priests would perform these spells. They would have either a, a written spell that they would put under the chalice, or there would be some sort of object we have a documented case of actually um, a, a priest performing regular mass, but in his hand holding the chalice, he had powdered pigeons, pigeon hearts that it had um, had a spell cast on them before they were moved into the church. So, it, it, you know, the police chief, when he took over his job, was really not aware that all of this was going on. He signed up to clean the streets get rid of the mud in the streets, which he did um, by, again, making sure that the populace came out when the church bells rang. They got their brooms out and they swept in front of the buildings of their homes, making sure that they stopped throwing their chamber pots outside of their windows, and then also making sure that Paris was lit at night and punishing heavily those people who were still um, causing trouble in the city. La Renée, the police chief, had no idea that this darker commerce was going on in his city. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Holly Tucker, author of City of Light, City of Poison. So what did Larini do when he sort of stumbled across these witches and priests and poisoners uh, who were conducting all of these uh, incredible rituals for nefarious purposes? Well, I think this is when we start to think about Larini becoming one of the earliest detectives because he needs to understand what's happening. And he... um, sets up a network of spies and informants. He also um, begins arresting people who may be involved in this network and um, interrogating them and basically working his way through this network that he really thinks that he's going to be able to extinguish quite easily, right? He's had great success clearing the streets. He's had great success turning Paris around in a very short period of time. And, And I think that he believes that this is, you know, just a a den of criminals that, like any other den that he's been dealing with, he can take care of. The issue for him becomes is that he he starts moving deeper through his interrogations. He starts to realize that it's not just um, people of the lower classes in this one specific neighborhood who are up to no good, who believe in magic, who are performing all these spells, but the names of some of the more well-known people in Louis XIV's court um, are coming up in his investigations. And that gives him some trouble because he's so dedicated to the king. Um, what does he do? Will he go to the king and say, hey, look, you, you know, I have great respect for you, but a lot of people who are surrounding you are up to no good. So mm-hmm. he has to be really sure that he has all the facts right. And so he enters into this period of intense, intense investigation. And by the end, he arrests over 400 people, Mm. um, many of them nobles, to begin investigating just how deep these crimes go. Um, And also, is the king in danger himself? Because there is concern that some of the people who are buying poisons and some of the people who are um, paying magicians um, and witches may actually have designs on the king's life. So how did you happen upon this story? You know, I've known about the story a long time, for a long time. I'm a college professor. I'm at Vanderbilt University, and this is my research area, right? 17th century France. I think the bigger question is um, deciding if I had the guts to write about it. Because there's so many people involved in this, um, and there's so many different conflicting stories, I needed to be sure that I had the documents that would be able to help me get to what I needed to get to. And the very idea of going through these manuscripts is just uh, actually dizzying. We're really lucky. We have tons of manuscript evidence um, at one of the libraries in Paris, at the Arsenal Library. And to describe them, I guess the best way to say is they are, these are huge, think about legal tomes. These are huge legal tomes that are probably easily six inches, most of them about six inches high, and probably at least um, two feet um, in height. <laughs> and they're just for this case alone, there are about 30 of those. And when you open them up, um, there are thousands and thousands of 350-year-old manuscript pages of interrogation records, torture documentation, because there were 
quite a few tortures that took place, execution records, as well as different documents that were confiscated from various suspects' homes. And the the handwriting is atrocious. 17th century handwriting written by notaries who are trying to scribble down everything that they can, that they're hearing. And so at first, uh, this was, gosh, about 10 years ago, I started looking at these documents. I thought, there is just no way that I could, I could do this project. And then um, as I started looking a little bit more, I got, oh, I don't know, this is not going to be possible because as it became clearer and clearer that some of the king's most trusted um, uh, court members, including his own mistresses, could be involved. The king asked Nicolas de Larigny, the police chief, to put many of those documents, the most incriminating documents, under seal so that they would never, no one would ever know just how deep it went. Um, And then I found out that on the day after the police chief's death, some 30 years later, the police chief kept the secret literally to his own grave. Um, The day after his death, the police chief arranged on the event of his death that a letter and a key would be delivered to the king. And only the king, he was the only one left who knew about these secrets. When the king received the letter and the key, he understood that that was the, the basically would unlock all of the documents that had been put under seal. And Louis XIV decided on a summer day to ask his uh, domestic staff, he's now at Versailles, to bring him the box, light a fire in the fireplace, and he fed all of the most incriminating documents into the fire. So I decided there's no way I can write this book. <laughs> there's wow. too much documentation, but there's also not enough documentation. And it's only about four or five years ago that I became aware of the fact that, and of course he did, Nicolette de Lorraine was unbelievably thorough. He made notes on everything. Lorraine, in trying to make sense of just how deep things went and who was involved and to what degree, Lowry took copious notes. He basically had his own personal journal. And when he was putting these thousands, I don't know if they're thousands, but at least several hundred um, manuscript pages of the most incriminating documents that he put under seal um, on behalf of the king's orders, he took copious notes. He did an inventory of what those documents are and provided summaries of the documents. And it was when I started to spend a lot of time with Larini's personal journal, I realized that um, that would give me uh, what I needed to be able to have the patience to go through the truly thousands of other manuscript pages at the French National Libraries. Um, And it would also give me insights into um, more than just insights. It would give me clear indications about exactly what the the king was afraid of him finding. So how did you uh, how did you go about doing it? Did you do all the research first and uh, then writing? uh, And how long did you spend on the research and the writing, I guess? Um, I think the yeah, I would say four years. This book was in the making. Um, it required a lot of um, time in the Arsenal Library in Paris. And what's interesting, um, these documents are accessible to researchers, but because um, you know there's something really uh, sexy and scandalous about the documents in the archives. I mean, how can they not be sexy and scandalous? You're talking about witches and 
and poisoners. Right. The curators, the curators, um, the documents are really protective of them. And because you know, there are, you know, fair number, particularly among the French, a fair number of people who want to be looky loos and take a look at it. And we're looking at extremely rare documents. So um, some of the time that I spent in the first um, portions of, of my research was basically researching around it and gaining the confidence of the curators. So they so they felt okay with me getting in there. Fortunately, some were already on microfilm. And so in those points when I needed to come back to the United States and still wanted to work on it, I could get the digitized copies and do what I could with them. Um, but only uh, less than 5% of the collections are digitized. Um, and then, you know, a lot of it is just sitting there with my computer going to really page by page, um, trying to make sense of what's going on and then keeping, um, I use social science methods on this book. I haven't done this before. There's a database. Um, it's a qualitative coding program called in, in vivo, um, that social scientists use and also lawyers use when trying to, um, tag and catalog testimony. Um, so, I did a lot of transcribing of my own documents and then um, I had a, uh, a very complex coding system that would allow me actually to take um, testimonies in, in the private courts. Louis XIV actually appointed a secret tribunal for this and the documents that I could get of those proceedings, I could actually take the testimony of person A and the testimony of person B talking about event Z and be able to um, cross-reference them. So it was really complicated. That's why it took so long to research. It was a really complicated process. And in fact, um, my colleagues and my family members always laugh because I don't seem to be able to go anywhere without three computer screens, <laughs> and which is truly what I needed to be able to do to be able to move these documents around when I had them digitized. Um, um, so yeah, it, it was a fascinating process. And you get to know a lot about people through their handwriting. Nicolas de Reni, his, his personal journal is fascinating because after a while you get to know when he's frustrated by the number of markouts he has. You get to know when he's feeling confident by um, how looping his handwriting is. Um, and perhaps that speculation on, on you know, my point, on my part, but it seems to always seem to correspond with the actual content in his letters. His handwriting always seemed to track um, the message and then the underlying emotion that he was he was indicating in his in his text. So you're a professor of French um, as well as of biomedical ethics at Vanderbilt, um, mm -hmm. which are, is an amazing pair of disciplines. Um, <laughs> it's an odd pair. <laughs> did did it help you to um, to have that grounding in the in the French language? Because I mean, you're still looking at uh, language that that's hundreds of years different from um, from modern French. I don't, I, there'd be no way that um, anyone could do this project without having um, a strong grasp of the French language. I'm actually bilingual. My grandmother was French. Mm. Um, and much of my work, I mean, I work in biomedical ethics, but more on the side of the humanities. If someone has a strong grounding in the history of medicine and um, cultural history. Um, but there would be, there would be no way, um, all, all of these documents of course are in, in French. And then at times, um, this is where, you know, I really relied on friends, um, who know matter more about 
Latin, Latin, for example, and particularly legal Latin than, than I do, because sometimes I would stumble on things that just made no sense. And, and I would also stumble on spells. This was what was really neat. There would be in the, in the archives, uh, random, because they collect, um, you know, they confiscate, confiscate the belongings of, of the accused, and there would be these magnificent spell books. Of course, most of it was in Latin. Um, and I could make sense of some of it, but you can imagine me calling up a, a college professor friend saying, what's this spell about? Because <laughs> um, I couldn't really make sense out of it. So at that point, you have to become a professor of magical ethics as well, and being very, very careful with what you recite and how. Yeah, um, that's the that's you know whether we believe in magic or not. What was really clear is um, the people that I was working with, including the king, um, and including the police chief. They believed in this stuff. I mean, they believed in the in the powers of of um, you know the idea that there's there's these good forces that operate in the world, and then there's evil forces, and that, that's why so many so many of these rogue priests were important. And that they were doing these um, incantations actually in, you know, the greatest churches of Paris is because where there is good and where there is God, if you um, perform identical ceremonies and rituals with a different spin is you can also, just as you can evoke the good powers of the universe, you can also bring out the the bad forces. And that that's part and parcel of how the, the world this time operated. Um, as well as astrology, for example, uh, I came across lots of different astrological charts. Louis XIV's own birth at the time of his birth, that's one of the first things they did for the king was to, is to plot out um, what the king's life would look like astrologically. Um, not because it was mystical or magical, it was just part of the mindset at the time. So, uh, what are you working on now? Well, I know that my next, everybody says their next book. Um, it takes me a little while each time um, to settle on a project because, you know, when these things take four years to write, you want to make sure that you really, um, you're really invested in the work. I do know that um, I'm, my next project will be on true crime again. There's something about historical true crime that that gets me really excited and I also know that um, it will be in France again um, but I'm working on some cases that are not in the 17th century I think my last three books um, have been about 17th century France the first one was an academic book the last two have been for larger audiences I'm ready to move into a new period um, but I'm also really excited to be able to stay in Paris so the Paris I'll be writing about in this next book you see I'm dancing around the question. I am still um, keeping it under wraps, but I know that the, the Paris I'll be working on will be a later Paris, but just because Nicolas de Lorraine got rid of a lot of crime and took care of a lot of poisoners and witches, um, that doesn't mean um, that the Paris was forever safe. And um, there are some really great stories to be told. We've been talking with Holly Tucker. You can find her book, City of Light, City of Poison, in stores right now. Holly, thank you so much for joining us. It was a treat. Thanks for having me.
I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Editor John Meyer talks about how arts and anti-censorship groups are handling the Trump era. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Min Jin Lee. I'm the author of Pachinko, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW News Editor John Marr is here to tell us all about literary nonprofits in the age of Trump. Hello, John. Nice to have you on the show. Thanks, Mark. Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. <laughs> so so tell us a little about this. This is an article that uh, will be running soon, uh, or maybe a couple of articles. Tell us what's going on. Sure, yeah. So uh, the article that we're that I'm here specifically to talk about, uh, the first in, in, in two and possibly more, uh, will run in next week's issue of the magazine. But it is part, I would say, of a sort of ongoing series that we have been working on over the past uh, few weeks and we'll continue to work on, which is focusing on the book industry in general in the age of Trump and ways in which the book industry is becoming uh, more political, becoming on occasion more more partisan, um, and is generally taking a stand against what it sees as an administration that is opposed to many of the values for which it stands. Uh, obviously, that's a, that's a pretty general uh, Assessment. There are certainly publishers who don't necessarily agree with that, uh, but it does seem as if uh, in the wake of, for example, uh, attacks on the press and uh, a budget that is due to eliminate the national endowments for the arts and for the humanities, uh, it, it seems as if the, the industry is, is sensing that, that a protracted battle is, is coming. So which organizations did you talk to for these articles? So uh, our first article actually was written by Edna Waka, uh, our international and, and bookselling editor, and, and it was sort of focusing on uh, on booksellers uh, and their programs. Uh, this article was specifically literary and book industry-related nonprofits, uh, and, and we ran the gamut. Uh, so we talked to everyone from the... CLMP, Council of Literary Magazines and Presses. Uh, a lot of acronyms here, so apologies uh, to the uh, to the uh, organizations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's see. To uh, poets and writers, we spoke to poets and writers. We spoke to Pen America and Pen Center USA. We spoke to the American Booksellers for Free Expression. I believe uh, that's under the ABA. We've spoke to the ALA. We spoke to everybody you would think of in literary and book industry related nonprofits and uh, the, the message was was pretty clear they're afraid of encroachments on freedom of expression they're afraid of the elimination of the national endowment of the arts they're afraid of the elimination of the national endowment for the humanities uh, they are deeply concerned that their work is in danger and they are working very hard often together to ensure that what they have consistently attempted to do does not become undone. Uh, one of the one of the big nonprofits uh, that that I found is in sort of the center of all of this is uh, LitNet or uh, Literary Network. So they were founded in 1992 as a combination of uh, an effort between CLMP and um, 
poets and writers. Uh, and in 1995, they won a massive legislative battle in, in which they, they stopped the NEA from getting cuts under, I, I guess that was Gingrich's house, I believe. Uh, I think Gingrich was Speaker of the House at the time. Uh, and it's not like any of this is new. Uh, so the, the NEA and the NEH were founded in, in 1965 or 1966. And as early as 1969, you had people like Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, publicly testifying to Congress saying, you can't slash these budgets. This is a battle that's been waged over and over and over and over again. This is, however, I believe, the first time, including an attempt failed by the Reagan administration. I believe this is the first time in which a proposed budget genuinely, in paper, says we're proposing the elimination of the NEA and NEH. So, so there's, a lot of, there's a lot of fear there. And so Literary Network, which, which won this battle in, uh, in the 90s, is something that all of these, almost all of these nonprofits that we spoke to are involved in very heavily in. The Authors Guild is involved in it. CLMP and, and Poets and Writers as founding members obviously are involved in it. Uh, others as well. Uh, I think uh, of the 12 nonprofits we spoke to, seven of them or six of them, excluding LitNet, directly mentioned that they were working with LitNet. So we fa- I found that particularly interesting. So uh, I wanted to talk a little bit, because I know you've written on it before, but Penn, what's going on with, what is Penn doing? Uh, Penn's doing a lot. So uh, one distinction I'd like to make before we we go anywhere with Penn is that there are, uh, Penn is a a complex multinational organization. Uh, Penn International is the overarching umbrella organization, and there are a number of sort of satellite groups. One of them is Penn America, and, and we I have robustly covered them here. Their executive director, Suzanne Nossel, uh, is, is a former Amnesty International head. She worked with uh, former Secretary Clinton under the Obama administration in the State Department. She's very, very active. But there's also Penn Center USA, which is Los Angeles-based mm. and is a separate sister group that is also doing a bunch of stuff. To be honest, one of the, one of the takeaways that I got from all of these groups, and, and Penn is included in this, is that not much has changed aside from the urgency. So a lot of what Penn America and Penn Center USA is doing is very similar to what they've always been doing, protecting the freedom of writers to write, protecting the uh, funding for writers to write from government agencies. Uh, I think the the big takeaway that I found here is that Nothing's changed aside from stepping up efforts. Uh, One thing that Penn America, uh, one thing that Suzanne did mention to me, which I found really interesting, was that they are thinking of opening a Washington, D.C. office, which I think reflects a sort of defensiveness and and attentiveness, uh, defensiveness toward and attentiveness relating to the current administration and the need artists and writers have to have their own group in Washington protecting them. Obviously, their main offices would stay in New York, but uh, but this is something that I found of particular interest. So looking at other maybe publishing houses that that have efforts to embolden themselves uh, you know in this era what what do we have well uh, i mean you you mentioned pen and i think it's uh, it's worth noting that both Hachette and uh, penguin random house have a i don't know if i'd call it a deal but they have a they have a sort of uh, agreement with pen that um, i believe any time i'm not sure what the timing on it is but i know that they had agreements in which uh, they're 
the companies would pay 50% of the pen memberships for any of their mm-hmm. employees who are wishing to get involved. Uh, so that's one thing. I will say publishers are a, a forthcoming, uh, a piece on publishers is forthcoming in our series, but we've, we've not done all of mm-hmm. that research yet. So that's sort of a, that's sort of uh, consider this a, a teaser. Right. But I will say that one of the things that I personally have noticed is that uh, a number of publishers uh, on social media in, in some of the, their books and, and at, the occasional event are being a little bit more forthcoming about their political stances with regards to uh, administration priorities. I'd like to joke that everyone in the industry is becoming Melville House very slowly, very quietly, uh, maybe not so quietly. They're pushing toward something that I see, and again, this is sort of my perspective. Uh, so, so take take it as as that. They're becoming a bit more open about political issues in a way that. Um, one of the folks I talked to actually uh, mentioned he hadn't seen since the Vietnam War, mm. a sort of politicization. But one really interesting thing that I, I found, and I was talking to uh, James LaRue, who was the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Uh, he was mentioning that a lot of this stuff is about continuing to educate people to understand just exactly how things are going to affect them, and also some of the rhetoric around it. Uh, For example, they're very concerned about fake news and trying to help children, students, library goers to discern what is satire and what is willfully false information. Mm. And sometimes news literacy is is complicated, uh, especially when the president of the United States is on Twitter saying that Anything that he doesn't like is fake news. That, that's a very complicated sort of scenario. But I would actually say that what I found the most fascinating about this, this article is not necessarily direct responses to uh, President Trump's agenda. Uh, what I found most interesting, and unfortunately it was, it was uh, a lot of these stories I was unable to incorporate in the article because uh, we had so many responses and they were so expansive uh, that that we really just had to sort of make this article a roundup. It, it it almost wasn't an article at all. It was just sort of, here's what they're doing. Here's the name of their organization, and here's what they're doing. Mm. But I I found some some stories really interesting, and, and one I wanted to share actually was uh, about a a librarian in in Darby, Montana, which is a, a, apparently a, a four thousand person town or, or or fewer, and she was finding that. Uh, that the discourse in the town was getting sort of toxic, and so she wanted to run, I guess, a, a, a series on, on diversity, let's say. She invited a black cowboy, for example, and Chinese-Americans who worked on, I guess, who worked on the railroads in Montana or, or, or something related to that, to come and, and discuss what it was like doing that in a state that is red and very white. And she apparently had no problem. There was amazing response from the community. There was all this, you know, in interest and, and energy. But as soon as an Islamic person was invited, local veterans began protesting. And this was all in, in talks with James LaRue from uh, the ALA. So he said that she wanted to make sure that this Muslim person was able to, to speak at, at the library, but it was safe and that it engendered genuine discussion mm-hmm. in which all parties came away learning something. Uh, so she talked to everyone in town. She talked to the police. She talked to the fire department. She talked to the ALA. And she wanted to make sure that she could hold this event safely. So uh, James sort of laid this out. She cleared out the library at 530, prepared for a 7 o'clock event. 
she let in 100 people, only the ones with tickets, and asked people to write down questions on note cards just so she could read them in a respectful tone and have sort of Mm -hmm. this, you know, a conversation that was a conversation and not just a bunch of people angrily yelling questions. Um, and, And at the end, after an incredibly successful conversation, she asked that the, the crowd, you know, clap and, and join her in thanking the speaker. And he actually said, no, please join me in thanking our librarian. Uh, and James told me she got a standing, uh, standing ovation and the town paper reported on it immediately after focusing on her and not the speaker. And I think that speaks in a lot of ways to how literary nonprofits, but also, you know, let's call them the boots on the ground in the, in the book industry and literary industry are, are really vital in maintaining uh, civilized discourse with multiple perspectives that allow for uh, anyone who's interested, be they readers or, uh, or non-readers to really have the chance to hear, hear things that they wouldn't necessarily hear. There's, you know, there's so much, there's so much energy around politics at the moment and and a lot of it is very negative and a lot of it is very uh is very willfully ignorant of the other's viewpoint i i think librarians booksellers publishers anyone who who fights for free expression in all of its forms they are they're the ones who are able to to sort of work to correct that and i think uh i think that's something that this article illustrates really well sounds like a wonderful article and uh it just sounds incredible yeah and uh, I'm really happy to know that there's going to be a series of them. Sounds like some really great reporting. Thanks. Uh, you know, I, I think it's one of those things that w- we think is really important simply because uh, it is dominating the media landscape and and it's, it's hitting publishing too. Uh, and I think uh, we will find some things that surprise us and certainly I hope our readers will be surprised pleasantly and, and for their own edification as well. Thank you so much, John. Uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show to tell us all about this. My pleasure. Thank you both. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Alyssa Cole, the author of An Extraordinary Union. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 